You guys were doing great there for a minute. It sounded like a bus station. That's good. Okay, uh, elementary kids and youth group. Praise the Lord. Pastor Chris is on the mend. You guys are out of here today. You'll have to help him hobble back to the back building. Teacher Ed is over there for the elementary kids. Bonjour. Bonjour. All right, awesome. Um, everybody else, we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 5 this morning. We're going to finish this first letter of Peter. Um, before we do two quick things, first of all, I do hope that you're going to stay with us um, for our fall thankful feast today, our agape feast. Um, as Susie said, it's in the back building. There's a fellowship hall back there. We don't use it a lot because, frankly, it's super hard to get you guys to go back there. But we have a plan today. What we're going to do is we're actually going to lock the front doors after service, and we're going to push everybody out that way, and then you're halfway there, so you might as well stay. But um, it's going to be a great time. So there's a fellowship hall back there, and they've already got things that they're preparing and setting out. It looks like it's going to be uh, super yummy. Uh, definitely worth your time to stay. There's also some seating outside for those of you that would prefer uh, to sit out there. So don't rush out of here today. Stay and have some fellowship um, with us. So important that we spend that time together uh, as a church family. And the second thing is for Operation Christmas Child, um, if you haven't done your boxes yet, it is not too late. This year they have this super cool build a box online option we did ours that way uh, this year just to kind of check it out. Um, but it's really cool. There's a link right from our website or from the e-bulletin if you get that. And you can click through and you end up right on our sort of, you know, goal page, if you will, for the Samaritans uh, Purse Operation Christmas Child effort. And you can do a couple different things. You can either go through and build your own box where you select different items and they'll put those in there for you. Or if you're super busy, you can just click build a box for me and they'll take care of everything. And there's also uh, an option if you want to that you can add a little extra money. I think it's $6 extra to have the child that receives your box. They all get the gospel given to them when the box is given to them. But there's an extra option this year where I think for six extra dollars, you can enroll your child as it were in an ongoing discipleship program that happens after that. So such a great uh, opportunity. I just looked up some quick stats. I guess since 1993, Samaritan's Purse has given 188 million boxes to children in 170 countries. So um, something that we love to be involved with every year. And this year, they've made it so easy you could hardly afford not to do it. I said that was the last thing. There is one more thing. This Thursday is Thanksgiving. And Thanksgiving is one of those uh, kind of interesting holidays to me that we've set aside one day to be thankful when as Christians we know that we need to be just as thankful the other 364 days out of the year just for all that it is that God's done for us. So uh, we pray that you have a blessed Thanksgiving with, uh, with family or with friends or however it is that you choose to celebrate um, but more importantly, that you have that same spirit of thanksgiving in your heart each and every day. So um, let's pray and just ask the Lord to really bless his word this morning. If you don't have a Bible, you're going to want one. And you can just raise your hand and we'll get one of the men to get you one. 
Uh, you can certainly use any Bible on your phone that you'd like to. I'll be teaching out of the New King James Version if you want to follow along uh, in that translation. But let's pray. So, Father, we thank you so much for today, Lord, and we thank you for all that it is that we have to be thankful for. Um, Lord, first and foremost, the work that you've done in each of our lives individually, Lord. We thank you for the opportunity that we still have, Lord, in this country to meet corporately, Lord, and to praise you and to worship you and to open up your word and to have you speak to us through it, Lord. And so we pray that you would do that this morning, Lord. We pray that the teaching ministry of your spirit would be manifest here today, Lord. Speak to our hearts, we pray. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So 1 Peter chapter 5. And we left off last week as we've been going through this really heartfelt letter from Peter to the church written uh, just on the eve of a time of great trial and great persecution. And having written so far, we've seen Peter really encourage them that in the midst of these trials, that they would be able to live lives of hope. And first, that they would sort of recognize all of the heavenly privileges that they have and then respond, therefore, kind of with the earthly responsibilities that come along with those privileges. He talked about living in holiness and living in harmony with one another. And that in doing these things, that they would be much better positioned, if you would, to endure the trials that were facing them and also in that during that time really to be witnesses of God's grace as it operated in their lives to those around them. And remember last week, Peter kind of shifted gears a little bit and he really talked about how to think clearly in days of real difficulty. We talked about living in days of difficulty and, and living with the mind of Christ and living like time is short and living really sustained by God's grace. And Peter really highlighted the sufficiency of God's grace in the midst of those times of severe suffering and severe trial. Um, Peter personally was a man who had discovered that God's grace was sufficient for him, and he really wanted the church to know that God's grace would also be sufficient for them in the very same way. And so he's starting to draw really from his own personal experience with Jesus to just encourage them in their own walk with Jesus. Um, Peter understood, we believe just by the, the spirit, that fiery trials, he said last week, would soon come to the house of God, right? The church of God. And it's those fiery trials we've talked about that God allows into our lives. Those are the furnace, right, that just purify the gold and really allow God to do that work of removing all of the dross, right, taking all of those impurities. And Peter also knew that the house of God needed to be in order, in order to withstand these times of testing and trial that were about to come. And so now here in chapter five, he's gonna finish out this first letter talking about the church and really encouraging us with some good housekeeping in the house of God. And he starts off first by saying in verse one of first Peter chapter five, he says, the elders who are among you I exhort 
I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. So Peter starts first with a word to the leaders. So a leader himself, Peter had some very practical encouragement for these other leaders because he had encouraged himself first as a follower. Right? He says he, there he was a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. So Peter says, look, I'm one of you guys, but I've also had a little more history with Jesus than you have. He says, I was a witness of his sufferings, but also of his glory. And we know that Peter was there walking with Jesus and he witnessed those times of intense suffering that Jesus endured. He was an eyewitness of his agony there in the garden, probably of his scourging, perhaps of his crucifixion. Although Peter's not specifically named as being there at the cross, we can only assume that perhaps he was anonymously present there in the crowd. So he had seen all of that, but also he'd been an eyewitness of the true glory of Jesus. The way, and it, when it was revealed to him, where? Up on the Mount of Transfiguration, Matthew chapter 17. As Jesus was transfigured into his eternal glory. So here we have Peter and James and John there on the mountaintop with Jesus getting this glorious glimpse of the incredible glory that Jesus had before he ever came to earth and that same glory that he has even now in heaven. And Peter has seen this and so he says, look, I've seen it. In other words, when the Apostle Peter writes to us about the fact that no matter what we're going through or all of the difficulty in this world as a Christian, and he keeps saying to us over and over, he says, keep your eyes fixed on eternity. Keep your eyes fixed on eternity. This is worth it. It's worth it. It's worth it for where this is all eventually going to end up. And we say, well, who made him the big expert well, frankly, God did. God made Peter an expert on the eternal glory of Jesus. And so now Peter has an advantage that we don't have. He saw Jesus transfigured. And so he can speak to us about what it is that he's experienced when he speaks of his own personal experience and relationship with the Lord. And it's so very critical for any of us who lead in any capacity within the church that we have our own personal history with God, our own personal relationship with God. Because no one in ministry ever rises above their own personal experience with Jesus, at least not for very long. You've probably heard it said, and it's certainly true in the spiritual sense, that we can't take people to a place that we haven't been. And so here Peter is kind of reestablishing his authority to be able to, to speak on this, and he's pointing them to his personal relationship with Jesus, first as a follower, and then only now as 
an elder. Now, the idea of an elder came into the church life, frankly, from the Jewish culture. And it certainly, in the general sense, it just speaks of the maturity and the wisdom that an older person should have, making them then qualified for leadership within the church. And so the, the idea itself speaks more just of wisdom than it does necessarily of age. And yet in the specific context, Peter is speaking specifically to those who were appointed as elders, those who were leading in the local church. However, for us this morning, it's important that you don't tune this out because in application, Peter's instruction here in this section certainly can apply to each and every one of us who's involved in any capacity, whether it's family or ministry or the church itself, in caring for and in ministering to these precious people that God has placed in our path. Now, in the context of the local church, Right? We saw it in the book of Acts. Right, we, we read about it in the epistles to both Titus and to Timothy. Paul had said that elders were, be, were to be appointed in each local assembly. And Paul's the one who gives us the most detailed instruction about the, the qualifications and the duties of these men who were called to those positions of church leadership. But Peter here gives us this beautiful kind of a heartfelt exhortation that's really based on the expectations that are put upon these these leaders. So Peter says that these leaders, in verse 2, he says that they need to lead well. In verse 2, he says, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by constraint, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. So first and foremost, he says to these elders that they should first be shepherds. Now, it's interesting as we read through the New Testament, what we find is that the title elder, bishop, pastor, they're all used interchangeably. And they each speak specifically about a different aspect of their responsibility, right? And Peter has used each one of them in just these first two verses. So presbyteros is the Greek word translated elder there in verse one. And it describes the man, right? One who's supposed to have some maturity and some experience, some history with God. Now, episkopos is the Greek word that's translated bishop. That describes the ministry. Again, not as overlording or overburdening, but overseeing, as we see here in verse 2. And then it's the word poimen, the Greek word translated pastor, that describes the method, right? So we have the man and the ministry and the method, which is then the feeding of the flock of God. And that's the word shepherd here in verse 2. And this was an especially important word in Peter's own experience. Because you remember, it was on the shores of the Sea of Galilee after Peter's failure, after Jesus' resurrection. In John chapter 21, you remember that beautiful scene as the Lord Jesus then restores Peter. And Jesus says to Peter in John 21, 16, he says, tend my sheep. 
right? Shepherd my sheep, poimen my sheep. So a pastor's duties at the most basic level include caring for, leading, encouraging, discipling, guarding, and feeding God's precious people, his flock. And first and foremost, that's precisely the first thing that we all need to remember as we are shepherding other people, is that we need to remember that the flock belongs to God. We're to shepherd the flock of God. The flock doesn't belong to the leaders. The flock are the Lord's. They are his precious sheep, each and every one of them. And each one of them needs to be cared for with great care because of it, right? Gently leading them, never driving them, right? You drive cattle, but you lead sheep because you love them and you love them the way that Jesus loves them. And in fact, I think that Peter shows us here that the most important tool to the shepherd, to shepherd the flock of God is to have a heart like the heart of the good shepherd the Lord Jesus, right? A heart that's willing to give one's life for the sheep, who genuinely cares about the sheep and is interested in the sheep. In John chapter 10, that beautiful, you know, the good shepherd chapter, Jesus says that I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. So as Peter points out here, a pastor shouldn't pastor because he is forced to pastor. And certainly a pastor shouldn't pastor to get rich as a pastor, right? Not to enrich themselves. No pastor, no elder, no bishop should ever use that gift that God has given to them to fleece the flock, right, or to get rich off of the flock. That's not why the gift has been given. That's not why the calling has been given. Money simply cannot be the motivation. Now, we could spend hours this morning, couldn't we, talking about all the, the many abuses that we all are aware of of this within the church. But I will simply say this from my own personal experience, that pastoring is a privilege. It's not an obligation. It is most certainly a calling and it's not a job. A true shepherd serves the sheep with a willing heart because he loves Jesus and he knows how much Jesus loves those sheep. Not simply because he has a job to do or a check to collect. And I will also say this, guys, if you are looking for a career choice, and if you're looking for high salaries and lots of time off and fantastic benefits package and retirement, I'm not sure that pastoring is the place for you. And yet, if God has given you a supernatural burden to care for his precious people, and you can't think about anything else, then you may just be called. You may be called to help the Lord to help his people in the very same way that he has helped you, right? Simply by shepherding them, by showing them what it is that he has done 
in your own life. Because notice what Peter says next. He says that we need to shepherd, verse 3, uh, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. So an elder needs to always remember the power of a godly example. In other words, the things that are taught in front of people or from a pulpit or from a platform or at a home Bible study or wherever it is that we need to live a life that's consistent in large part with what it is that we're teaching. And I love this quote. Uh, It's been well said that a leader is one who knows the way, goes the way, and shows the way. And it's so important that we remember that we haven't yet arrived, but that we are all on this journey together. Right? As pastors or as Christian leaders, people serving in the ministry, we are not the reverend, right, most holy bishop, his high excellence. Ask my wife about that, right? Instead, we are just one of the sheep showing the other sheep the great goodness of the great shepherd. So why is it that I ended up up front here? Well, if you think of the church like a hospital, I'm probably up front maybe because I made it out of intensive care a little sooner than some of you did in the hospital of God's grace and of his goodness. Or maybe it's simply because I've had more radical emergency surgeries than some other people have. So I've simply learned my way around a little bit. I know where the cafeteria is. I know where the bathrooms are, right? I know which workers to watch out for. I know which doctors to stay away from. And the the important thing for an elder is to always remember that we are in this thing together. We're all sheep in God's flock, even though I may oversee this one. And I may help to lead it with the other under-shepherds, right? Pastors Mike and Jeff and, and Chris. And there is a big difference between dictatorship and leadership, isn't there? Dictatorship says go. Leadership says let's go. So whether you are parenting or pastoring, a true leader in any arena is a partner who's leading by example in whatever it is that he or she is teaching or helping other people to do. Paul put it this way, speaking to his young assistant Timothy. He said, be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. In other words, all of us, especially pastors, leaders, we should be an example first to those around us to whom, you know, whom God has entrusted to us, simply trying to model for them what the Christian life looks like. To be people of prayer and people of compassion and people of worship, to allow them to watch the way that we weather the trials in our own lives because when we just let people start to see this kind of thing operating in us, they might just be encouraged to start to seek after the very same thing for themselves. And any of you in leadership or or in Christian service, you know that living this type of a selfish, selfish, selfless, is what I meant, 
Living a selfish lifestyle is easy, right? Living a selfless, sacrificial lifestyle because you want to be an example, it can often be difficult. And for all of us, what that means is that so often what might be okay for some isn't okay for us, and certainly specifically not for me as a pastor. And it also often means that the cost is higher. We just saw, right, that we're promised that all Christians who try to live godly will suffer persecution simply for trying to live that way. But for a Christian leader, for someone in Christian service, the stakes are higher because the target is bigger. All, right, all over the world, in certain parts of the world, whether we're talking about Peter's day or even today, if they catch a secret church meeting, they will often throw a member of the congregation in prison perhaps for 10 years. But they'll take the pastor of that church and they'll throw him into prison for 25 years. So in that day and in many places today, it isn't a situation where everybody's wanting to be an elder, right? Nobody's begging to be a pastor and to have that particular position. I mean, there was, there still is a tremendous risk to operate as a leader in the body of Christ. Not to mention just the level of sometimes overwhelming spiritual warfare and attack that comes upon and is unique to pastors and leaders. The kinds of deep burdens that we carry because we, care, we carry the burdens of every member of the church body. All of those cares and concerns, not just for the sheep, but for the ministry, right? Will the money come in, right? Will the people keep coming in? What's the next thing the state's gonna mandate for us and how are we gonna navigate that? Right? What happened to this person, and how come I haven't seen that person, and why aren't more people coming back to church right after the pandemic? There was a Barna study from just four days ago that said that 38% of American pastors had considered quitting the ministry during the past year, and that was a 10% increase from the year before. 1,700 pastors per month leave the ministry entirely. Because for so many pastors, it can simply become too overwhelming. Right, post-pandemic pastoral burnout, we could certainly say is at an epidemic rate. See what I did there, epidemic rate? Eric, did you catch that one? It's a good one, right? Epidemic rate. Here's the thing, guys. The, the challenges might be unique now, right? But the unique challenges always exist for people in Christian service and in Christian ministry and certainly in Christian leadership, especially serving in and amongst the local church. And so Peter closes out this exhortation to the leaders, and he reminds us in verse 4, he says that when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Now, one of the reasons I love Peter's letters is because of the way that Peter works. Because he exhorts us, but then he comes right alongside and he encourages us, right? He can push kind of hard at his readers to make sure that we get in line, but then he reminds us with this godly encouragement that comes right from this place of personal experience. He says, don't forget, this is all going to be worth it. 
it's all worth it. Whatever price you are paying, when one day the chief shepherd, right, the great shepherd, when Jesus Christ appears and then he crowns you for your faithfulness and your service to him and his precious body, it will be worth it. And you think about the way this would have been such an encouragement to the elders and the pastors who were paying such a great price at that time, knowing that they're just a target simply for being faithful to their calling. And Peter reminds them the way he's been reminding all of us through this whole letter to keep their focus on the eternal. That reminder that glory always follows suffering. If we submit to the Lord and we serve him faithfully right now, if you are an example to other people, if you're faithfully feeding them, caring for them, the day is coming when all of those things that were unnoticed are going to be greatly rewarded. So each of us, right, wherever it is that we're serving or who we're serving or how we're serving, we each need to remember for ourselves that there is a time coming when all the things that we have done are going to be tested by fire, the good stuff left over, right, and then these rewards, these crowns are going to be given to us in heaven for our faithful service. But we also remember with that, don't we, that the crowns that Peter's talking about here are not simply so that we can parade around in heaven like in some sort of heavenly fashion show for all of eternity because no one's going to care one lick at that point, are they? But as we've recently seen, remember back in Revelation chapter 4, in the example of the 24 elders who were around the throne, the crowns are simply for us to cast continually at the feet of Jesus, simply out of gratitude and adoration for everything that he's done in us, everything that he has done with others through us. So not just for me or for Mike or for Jeff or for Chris as your pastors, but for every one of us here in the body of Christ, serving one another as God's people is such an incredible privilege, but there is an earthly cost that's associated with it, but Peter promises us that there's a heavenly reward that will greatly outweigh all of it. Now, just in case you thought you were going to get off easy this morning, right, because Peter's just addressing the pastors and the elders, right, they need to lead well, but now he says that next, that we all need to live well in light of that leadership. Look what he says in the first half of verse 5. He says, likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. So Peter pivots here, right? He turns his attention from the shepherds to the sheep. Because if God's sheep deserve good shepherds, then good shepherds deserve what? good sheep, right? It works both ways, doesn't it? Now, of course, you need to put a big star by this verse. This verse may well be the most important verse in all of the New Testament. So we are going to spend some extra time, maybe six weeks probably, on the first half of this verse. Because I've studied every single Greek word, and we may just bog down a little bit. Just kidding. We're not going to spend six weeks maybe just six minutes, 
because the key to Peter's point is such a simple one, and it's all wrapped up in just one word, humility. And Peter says that we need to clothe ourselves in it, all of us, mutually. So just as the shepherds are shepherding with a spirit of humility, the sheep should similarly submit with a humble spirit to a humble shepherd. And this whole thing is such a beautiful picture because that word clothe there was a word used for the cloak of a slave or a servant in a household during that time. And the lowest position, the lowest place of a servant was when you had come into someone's house and you've been out there walking around all day on the dusty streets in your sandals and you can imagine that your feet would simply be filthy. But there was one servant in the house whose job it was to wash your feet for you as you came into the house. That was the lowest position in the whole house. And that servant would wear an apron, and when he had washed your feet, he would then dry your feet with his apron or his cloak. And so that's the picture that this one word, clothes, paints for us. It's a picture of humility and of service. And so first and foremost, Peter's telling us that none of us should think that we're too good to take even the lowest position in serving one another in the body of Christ. And no doubt, we can only assume that all of this instruction, Peter's pulling from his own experience in John chapter 13, when Jesus himself took, you remember, on the night before he was crucified? You talk about the weight of the world, literally, that would have been upon him at that moment. But what does Jesus do? He clothes himself with a towel or this apron, the same thing that's spoken of here, and he selflessly washes their feet as an example to them. And then he said, here's the lesson. He said, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. None of us are too good to do anything that God calls us to do in our service of the body of Christ. None of us. And to be clothed with humility means to be controlled by a spirit of humility, right? A humble spirit. And humility means is that even if that elder over me Right? Whether it's mom or dad or a husband or the spiritual brothers or a sister who's overseeing my ministry, even if they make the wrong decision, I need to be the right person. And so this applies to marriage or to parenting or to the church or to the job site. It applies anywhere that people are. Right? Our responsibility as believers is not to make sure that the authority over us makes the right decision. Our responsibility is to make sure that we're the right people even in the face of the wrong decision. Hebrews chapter 13, it says, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Every Christian leader will give 
an account to God for the way that he or she cared for every single soul that was entrusted to them. You want to talk about something that keeps you up at night. So we can leave the judgment to God, right? And we can simply be freed up just to focus on humility. Now, I will say this. Peter most literally is specifically addressing the younger people of the church because, frankly, they're the ones who most specifically need to be reminded to be submitted to their elders. Why did we let the youth group leave today, right? Today was a day they should be in service. And yet, in the same way that elder spoke specifically of a spiritual maturity, right? Not just a a chronology. There are certainly some who are older in their years but may qualify as younger in terms of their spiritual growth. And yet this exhortation should be applied to all believers, I believe, as we follow and honor our spiritual leaders, those who have been with the Lord for a long time. Right? Maybe those people that God has called into a position of leadership in the body, whether he's done it formally or whether he's done it informally, because there is a lot to be learned from them. And at the risk of maybe painting with too broad a brush, sometimes it can be those younger generations who forget that there is a lot wrapped up in the older generation. There's a lot to be learned from them. There's a wisdom that has become a, a part of them. And so I think it's so very important, especially in our culture in the United States where rebellion is kind of nurtured by the world in young people, but it's so important that we're reminded that not any one of us knows everything and that we can all still learn something. That's why Peter says we're to be mutually submissive to one another, constantly clothed with that humility. And then Peter goes on to quotes from Proverbs 3, and he gives us two very good reasons why we ought to be that way. Look at the end of verse 5. He says, for God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Now, who in the world wants to be resisted by God? Especially when we could receive his grace instead and then be exalted by him. But I guess you can choose, right, whichever one of those things you want to do. You know, we have all of this pride that plagues us in each one of our lives. God asks us to be humble with one another. And if I look and I say, you know what? No, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to submit to that. I'm not going to forgive that person. I'm not going to live humbly. We have now put ourselves into a position of forcing God to resist us in our lives instead of pouring out his grace upon our lives. And one language expert wrote about that word resist. He wrote that the verb vividly pictures God as one who places himself in battle array against such individuals. No thank you, I'm not looking for that, amen? Pride and grace are eternal enemies. 
And there's an old Scottish proverb that says that pride and grace never dwell in one place or in the same place or whatever that crazy I, I place. Pride and grace never dwell in I place. Or if one of you knows how to say that, you can tell me afterward at the feast, right? Because pride, what pride does is it demands that God bless me because I think I deserve it. Whereas grace deals with me on the basis of what's in God, right? Not have anything to do with me, right? If we want to experience God's grace to the fullest measure that God can possibly pour out on us, Peter says that happens by being humble. It happens because we have humility. Think about it. There is something about the humility in a child that causes the heart of a father to simply want to open up the storehouse of whatever he has. And to know that he can just lavish that on his child and that child's going to appreciate it and be able to handle it and use it in a healthy way. It does something to the heart of a father. And it's the very same thing with our Heavenly Father. God loves to bless and he will always bless humility when he sees it in our lives, right? It's the, the sure way that we can experience all the grace that God has for us. It's the sure way that we can be sure that we'll be exalted by him because we first humbled ourselves before him. Now, note this, that command there for us to humble ourselves, it can also be translated, allow yourselves to be humbled. That's great news, because if you don't think you can do it all by yourself, rest assured, God will be faithful to do it for you. God knows exactly how to knock each one of us right off of our high donkeys, doesn't he? Ask the Apostle Paul, right, all about that, Acts chapter 9. And yet, we could also ask the Apostle Paul about how it was that the very same Lord who knocked him off of that donkey then exalted him to a life that he had never imagined and never dreamed of, all because he allowed himself to be humbled. He fought it, didn't he, for a long time. But eventually it was too difficult to fight. He was kicking against the goads. He allowed himself to be humbled and God exalted him mightily because of it. So in these times of uncertainty and struggle, right, those who are enduring this kind of difficulty for Christ's sake, what an encouragement it would have been for them that that same mighty hand that was allowing them to go through what they were going through was the same mighty hand that would one day lift them out of it, right, and exalt them because of it. And so Peter's saying, look, guys, don't miss the point of this exercise. Allow this time of suffering to really bring you low before him so that then when he sees that you're ready, he can lift you up and exalt you out of it. So for any one of us in whatever situation that we might find ourselves struggling in or dealing with or trying to work through, whether it's a disagreement with someone in authority or whether it's a health crisis or some kind of a relationship problem, maybe we're dealing with issues from our past, maybe we're dealing with issues of sin in the present, 
in our own lives, but whatever we're dealing with, we need to start looking at it like it's coming directly from the mighty hand of God himself, humble ourselves before him in it, not because it's fun and not because we enjoy it, but instead simply because we trust that in due time, right, when it is that he knows that we're ready, that he is going to bring us out from underneath it. That at that point we'll be lifted up, just like the Apostle Paul, to new heights in him and to, to a wonderful new experience with him and a, a powerful witness that we're going to have for him. And Peter tells us next that in the midst of all of this great difficulty that we should endure and we should do it, it says in verse uh, 7, casting all your care upon him for he cares for you. Now imagine the kind of cares these Christians would have been carrying. They are literally fleeing their homes from their cities and from their lives with their children. Imagine the weight of the world that they were dragging along with them. The kinds of questions, right? Where are we going to find food tomorrow? Where are we even going to stay tonight? Right? All these questions of where, where, what, what. All of these different kinds of things that were unknown for them. And what Peter says is make sure that instead of you carrying all these things, he says that you cast these things, you cast all of those cares on the Lord. Every single last one of them. Why? Because he cares for you. To lift all these things up to the Lord and unload them upon the Lord and then to know that I can do that because he really cares for me. He really cares for you. God really cares about each and every one of us all the time. And that means that he cares about us even in the middle of our difficulty. And this was something, again, that Peter could speak to from experience. Remember back in Mark chapter 4, remember on the night of that storm in the boat when the disciples were in there with Jesus and they cried out to him, but it said that he was in the stern asleep on a pillow. And they awoke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Then he arose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm but he said to them, why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? Right? In times of trial, so often Satan foils our faith and he does it with fear. Because he somehow convinces us that the Lord doesn't care at all about us. Right? Or, if the Lord did care about us, we wouldn't be in this fiery trial to begin with. And yet, nothing could be further from the truth, because the truth is that he is there with us. And he will carry those cares if we just cast them on him and leave them there before fear takes over. But it's not easy, right? It's not easy at all. And I think Peter knows that, because notice... The word casting is a pretty energetic word, isn't it? He didn't say, even as we sang this morning, he didn't say, lay all your care upon him. Because he knows 
that there are times when we need to do it more energetically than that, especially when we are in the midst of a trial. And the idea of that word casting is throw that stuff away from you because the pressures and the burdens of your life are so heavy and they are so difficult that so often it takes this great concentration of effort, doesn't it, to put those things onto Jesus and to just leave them there. Because the real challenge, for some of us at least, is that we may have no problem even energetically casting our care upon him, but then, Oftentimes, before we even get up from our prayer, we've somehow put those cares all back into our bucket, right? We've packed them back into our backpack, and we've put that thing back on our shoulders, and then we are headed back out there thinking that we need to just go handle these things ourselves. Now, at its heart, that is just simply the sin of pride rearing its ugly head in our lives again. Because understand that our true humility is shown by our actual ability to cast our care upon God and then to leave it there with him by faith. It is prideful presumption to take things and put them back into our backpacks for us to worry about ourselves, and for us to care about things that God has promised that he will already take care of. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus said, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Again, it's that importance of prayer and of dependence and of maintaining that perspective. Otherwise, we're just going to get completely crushed under the weight of that trial. And no, Jesus promises us, Peter reminds us, there is someone who is taking care of us. Amen? There's someone who cares for you. And Peter's saying it again. He says, look, if there is no one else in the world that cares about us as Christians and the things that we're facing, Peter says, God cares. God does care. And so let's make sure we're talking to him about these things that we're in the middle of. And yet, we need to be warned, right? Because here comes a word to the wise. Because even as we cast our care upon God, we need to remember that our enemy is out to destroy us. So Peter has first exhorted the leaders to lead well. He's told all of us to live well. Now he reminds us together that we need to watch well. Look at verse 8. He says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Now, this might seem like sort of a sudden shift, right? We've gone from this wonderful encouragement about God's care for us now to this stark warning about the fact that Satan is seeking after us. And yet, this is actually a very profound place 
for this sudden warning to suddenly be included. Why? Because the devil never plays fair, does he? The devil doesn't look and say, wow, you know, Bill's going through such a hard time. I think I'll just hold off on my next attack, right? It's the opposite, isn't it? So often he waits until precisely the time when we are getting pounded by everything in the world and we are stretched as far as we can be stretched. And then what does he do? He just piles more on, doesn't he? It's a method that he has of doing things. He is so ruthless and he is so heartless. And so Peter reminds us right now in the middle of all of these things that these are the times when we need to expect that Satan is going to come at us like a roaring lion because he wants to devour us. He's not trying to just take a nibble or to have a little lick or to have a tasty little snack. He wants to finish us off. And who better than Peter himself to know about the way that Satan was on the prowl? Remember in Luke chapter 22, at the Last Supper, Jesus warned Peter. He says, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. And of course, that idea of sifting as wheat, it's, a, I think, such a powerful picture of like shaking someone apart, right? Breaking a person down, right? And yet here's the thing. It wasn't just Peter that Satan is after. The word you there in that verse is in the plural. Because Satan wants to break down and shake apart and totally devour all of us as Christians. So how in the world right, can we possibly stand against that? Well, I'm glad you asked because Peter answers it. Verse 9, he says, resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. So Peter just told us to be alert. Now he tells us to resist. And this is a great Greek word. It has the sense of a whole army standing together to oppose the enemy. So as Christians, we need to stand together remembering that other Christians are going through these very same trials and that you are not alone. Because one of Satan's supremely successful strategies one of the things the devil really likes to do when we find ourselves in the midst of great trial and great difficulty is he will try to make us feel like we are the oddball, right, in that suffering. Like nobody else is going through this, that we are all alone and that we've been abandoned by God. And what happens? Suddenly we are sinking deep into self-pity and we begin to believe this kind of stuff. We start saying, well, you know, there must be something wrong with me, or this just doesn't work for me, or this doesn't seem fair to me. And Peter writes and says, look, remember, this stuff happens to everyone who's trying to walk faithful with God in the midst of this worldly system all over the world. You are not alone. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I need a good, strong rebuke right here in this area. Right? Don't think that you're the only one that goes through this. 
Right, the Lord said to Elijah, I've got seven, you know, hundred other just like you who've not bowed to these idols. Right, God's people are struggling with these same kinds of things all over the world. And it's true. Paul said this. Paul assured us that no temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. I promise each of you this morning that whatever you are struggling with today, that there is someone else here in this sanctuary or watching with us online who has struggled or is struggling with that very same thing also. Whether it's a temptation of the flesh or a temptation of the faith or a temptation to doubt or a temptation to just quit, right? Men, we all struggle with the very same stuff. Ladies, your struggles are the very same as that other woman sitting across the aisle from you. And that's why we so desperately need the, this honest, authentic fellowship with one another in the body. Because what happens is that I hear about their faith, right? And as I hear about the way that God's faithfulness has helped one of my brothers in his struggle, it not only strengthens my faith that I'm not the only one that's thinking this way or doing that thing, but more importantly, it reminds me that God can help me overcome this issue just like he helped my buddy. See, if Satan can get us to think that we're alone or that God has us singled out or that he's let us down, then he will discourage and defeat us. But Peter promises that we can defeat him, right? We can stand strong together. We can resist the devil as we stand fast but rest well in the grace of God. Look what he says in verse 10. He says, but may the grace, uh, sorry, but, sorry, but may the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory for Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. So we can have victory Right? Even in our suffering and through all of our struggles, because our God is the God of all grace. And that is a whole lot of grace, isn't it? No matter how high the devil or the world has ratcheted up that particular persecution against you, no matter how big the trial gets, no matter how dangerous this difficulty seems to you, God has all the grace that's necessary to give you to be faithful so that you can stand in the midst of it. Especially as we look ahead to that glory that's just on the other side of it. And you think again about how that would have spoken to their hearts the very same way that it speaks to our hearts when we're in that same place. And I think that in this one verse, Peter has perfectly summarized his whole message of encouragement. Again, saying, look, guys, as Christians, our suffering is only going to last a little while, but our glory in Christ, that glory to which we've been called, that will be eternal. And God's going to restore us, and he's going to make us strong and firm and steadfast. 
And so I think Peter's letting us in on something that's so very important is that grace is dispensed to us through those hardships that come upon us. Right? God allows suffering to come into our lives sometimes so that he'll be able to pour his grace all over us. Right? Just to bathe us in that grace. Because it's only when we suffer, if we're honest, it's only during those times of difficulty and trial that we come to the end of ourselves and we really learn to lean fully on him. Right? Grace is supplied freely to those who sense their need for it. Right? First we suffer, and then it's as we suffer that he equips us and confirms us. And then what does he do? He rebuilds us with himself now as the foundation. And check this out. That same word perfect that's used by Peter here in that verse is a word that Matthew used back in Matthew chapter 4, and it has this idea of fixing a fishing net. It says that Jesus first saw two brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending or perfecting their nets. And the, the Greek word there means to equip for service. So as we've seen before, suffering not just helps us as believers to grow ourselves, but it's very often God's way of equipping us for future service. And sometimes the very best way that God has of mending our nets is to allow us to go through some suffering, right? He allows this whopper of a big fish of a trial Right, to stretch us or maybe even tear us a bit so that he can mend or really repair those areas that were weak. Not because he wants us miserable, but because he wants us stronger. He wants us perfected and established and strengthened and settled. And he loves us way too much to leave us in that kind of torn, haggard place. He wants us to be ready and fit for him to use here, but even more importantly, for heaven later. So Peter reminds us one more time that God has called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus. He says, don't forget, all of this ends in heaven. And heaven goes on for a very long time. So keep that eternal perspective. And know that while you're here, God is always going to be faithful to use every trial to develop character in our lives and to develop depth within our lives. And I think knowing that, when we truly believe that in our hearts, I think that our hearts overwhelm and overflow with thanksgiving just like it does for Peter. Look what it says in verse 11. He says, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So as Peter thinks about these things, right, as he's thinking about God's grace, as he's thinking about eternity, as he thinks about the way that God can turn everything around on the devil and work it for good, and that he develops Christians who have even greater character now as a result of enduring the temptation, Peter can't help but just break out and praise the Lord. And notice this, that he praises Jesus who has all the power all the time, right? He has the dominion forever and ever. And I love that because if we believe that he does have all the power all the time, then that means he certainly has the power that we need 
right now to strengthen us as we undergo whatever time of distress we're in. Paul wrote to the Ephesians about the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Do you realize that the very same power of the Holy Spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead is working in your life right now? And what that means is that as long as your problem, right, as long as your situation is no bigger than raising a man from the dead, then God can handle it. So the power is there. What we need is just to trust in and to rely on it and to know that God's grace is sufficient for me. He says in verse 12, by Silvanus, our faithful brother, as I consider him, I've written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you, and so does Mark, my son. So just like Paul so often did at the end of his letters, Peter probably penned these last words himself in, himself instead of Silvanus. That's Silas, who we read about in the book of Acts. Silas served as Peter's secretary for the rest of the letter, probably writing down everything that Peter dictated to him. No doubt the Mark here in verse 13, that's John Mark, the author of the gospel according to Mark, who Peter considered to be a son in the faith. We know that he was also the cousin of Barnabas. Now the reference to Babylon is probably, frankly, a code name for Rome. And Peter uses this in order to protect both the Roman believers as well as himself from that coming persecution under Nero as Peter's offering these blessings and these greetings from the believers there to these people who are receiving the letter. Some students do believe that Peter was actually writing from ancient Babylon. Not many people, but it's, it's a possibility the point is, wherever Peter was writing from, his heart is the same. And then just these two words, right? He's exhorting and he's testifying. He sums up the whole purpose of the letter. It's to encourage Christians to endure, endure persecution and to stand in one place. Where is that? In the true grace of God. That's the whole point of Peter's five chapters to encourage us to stand in the true grace of God because the Christian life is all about grace. And no one knew this better than Peter did. Now you'll be glad to know we're not going to take the time to do it now, but go back on your own and you'll see that nearly every exhortation that Peter gives to us in his letters comes from an area that we see that he failed in the Gospels. You read through the Gospels, of course, there's Peter always talking when he should have been listening and rushing ahead when he should have been holding back. He's sleeping when he should have been praying. He's hiding out when he should have been holding up. He's warming himself around the enemy's fire. He's wondering about John when Jesus said he should just do more worrying about himself. And that's precisely why we love Peter, isn't it? Because we are all Peter, aren't we? But here's the good news is that even after all of those failings, 
Peter was used mightily because he understood, in light of those failings, he understood precisely what he's sharing with us in the closing of the letter, that it's not perfection that's necessary or that's important to the Lord. It's teachability, right? It's humility in the school of God's grace. I have failed, you have failed, yet when, like Peter, we learn lessons from our failures and we lean into the grace of God to get through those things, then we can start to speak with authority and we can speak with passion and we can say to suffering people, I've been there. I've done that, right? I have made more than my share of mistakes but God's grace was sufficient for me. And I promise you that God's grace will be sufficient for you. Because it's his grace that will establish and settle and strengthen you as you grow through these things. And so now in this very last verse, to this group of people who are suffering this intense persecution, notice that Peter gives them not a promise of ease, but he leaves them with this blessing of peace. He says in verse 14, greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. If you go back and you look at the very first chapter in the very second verse of what Peter wrote to us, Peter finishes here at the end of the letter exactly where he started by encouraging those who are in the midst of persecution to rest in the peace that Jesus provides, especially during those times. It's that perfect peace that we're promised. It's not the absence of difficulty, right? But it's peace right smack dab in the middle of the difficulty that you are dealing with. And as we close quickly this morning, there may be some of you here that don't yet have that peace and you're still looking for that kind of peace this morning. Jesus is the one who has it. And he's the one who wants to give it to you. You simply need to ask for it. And if you're here this morning and you have never asked him for that peace, you've never asked to be forgiven for your sins, to be reconciled with the Father, and to know that peace of God and that peace with God, you can do that this morning. As we worship this morning and close, there will be people up here in the front who can pray with you, whether it's to receive Christ for the first time or to, to bring a specific prayer need to him, to cast them, some of those cares upon him and to leave them there with him. And I'd encourage you to take advantage of those, uh, of those people. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this letter, and we thank you for Peter, Lord, and we thank you for his experience with you, and we thank you for the way that you brought him through, Lord, some difficult times of growth, Lord, but the way that we see that he leaned hard into your grace during those times, Lord, and as a result of it that you perfected him, Lord, you, you prepared him for ministry, Lord, you settled him. And you've made him such a, a blessed resource for us. Lord, we pray that we would um, 
Lord, that we would really allow his words of encouragement to sink deep into our hearts, Lord. Whatever trial that we're each dealing with right now, whatever struggle that we're facing, Lord, we pray that these words of Peter would, would uh, just resound in our hearts uh, even now and drive us to you, Lord. And we thank you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's uh, stand up and worship the Lord. They needed a couple extra minutes to get the food ready, so I went a few minutes extra this morning.